inspire. Welcome back to Starting Now. I'm your host, Jeff Saris. This is a show where I talk to entrepreneurs and creators of all types to reveal their unexpected paths to where they are today. Today, my guest is Luke Laurie. Luke is a phenomenal board game designer, and he has, I mean, he's not only created a couple of my favorite games of all time, but he has built a platform for community. He has found his community both as a designer for within his design community, but also within the customer base. And he's ever present in on Facebook and Facebook groups. And he's always there to answer questions and connect with people who love his games. This was a wonderful conversation. We went way over time because there's just so much to talk about. And he's just an all around just awesome person to have a conversation with. So without further ado, my conversation with middle school teacher and board game designer, Luke Laurie. So with everything that you have going on, being a teacher and whatnot, how do you fit in board game design? I mean that because you are ever present. So Dwellings of Eldervale, extremely popular game, thriving community. You're there. You're there all the time. Well, not, not, I'm sure not all day, like you're working, but um, you're, there, you're just accessible. You're an accessible um, designer in a way that I think a lot of board game designers like maybe aren't. So how do you balance your time? So it, it's partly not balanced. Okay. I mean, <laughs> in some ways, you're always neglecting something. The thing is, is are you neglecting something that doesn't matter? So um, I try to make sure I'm not neglecting my children or my spouse or my financial obligations or my career. Um, but I might phone it in on some of the things that people do spend a lot of their time and effort on. And, um, I've always been a multitasker and I've always been kind of a, a jack of all trades. And so I've had to shift and, you know, move from one activity over to other activities and focus that attention to make some of those things happen. As a designer, I tend to get up every morning and design at about 6 a.m. Um, before I work and I'm not on the clock for work until eight and um, uh, my brain can do math and creative work in the morning before I can talk so I I can't really speak really well <laughs> and uh, I haven't you know the coffee takes a while to kick in and um, but I can still do that creative work I don't know maybe it's like a half dream state or something mm -hmm. like that um, I tend to think of design ideas while I'm driving, while I'm biking, while I'm doing other things. And I'll just, you know, I'll pull out my phone and I will, I'll take an audio memo. Or um, if I'm, if I'm in a circumstance where, well, I'm thinking of the old days, I'm in a boring meeting that doesn't really apply to me and I have a spiral <laughs> notebook and I can be like, yeah, I, that's interesting, but this is more interesting. And um, I can, if you can take down those ideas and then go back and do the work with it later, that matters. And sometimes just the act of, of writing it or recording it is enough for it to make an impact on the kind of the next step of the creative work. Yeah. So you have a very regimented process then. If you're starting, is it typically every day 
you start working on some of the design for games or is it uh, hit or miss based on your inspiration? Yeah, no one observing it would call it regimented. <laughs> I mean, like, what is he doing? It looks like he's playing Hearthstone. Uh, <laughs> Research. Yeah, he's, he's making his coffee. I don't know. I, that doesn't look like work to me. Um, but uh, yeah, so the reality is, is that the, you know, the cycles of thinking and stepping away from the work, uh, it, it's sometimes a grind, but a lot of times it's, it's more like a series of, of crescendos to an idea that becomes committed and then kind of a lull until the next one. And then, and then it'll, you know, it'll hit in these, these bursts. So sometimes it, I will come home from work um, and I will have some ideas and I'll, I'll get those down as quickly as I can. And um, my wife is also a teacher. She's a super dedicated elementary teacher and she tends to work late. And so while she's working, I'm working. Um, I take my daughter to dance and I might go for a bike ride or a hike or something, or I might work on my game design it, it's almost always present but there's also an illusion here the illusion is that somehow i i designed uh cryo and dwellings and whistle mountain all in this short amount of time and i did it yeah they all came close. out within what two months of each other ish yeah within well i guess it depends on where like uh, cryo hasn't officially been released yet like okay. in just, uh, just a couple of weeks but all of these games came out within, say, a five, six month span from like, you know, first copies being shipped and so on to to present. But like these designs, let's see, these are probably off by a little bit, but Cryo about started at about five or six or finished it about five years ago. Nice. Um, Whistle Mountain about four years ago and Dwellings about three years ago. It um, is wild. Like patience. That's the more I've learned about this industry, it really feels like patience is a yeah. key to to navigating it. Like yeah, it really just, is. That um, is a huge it, time time distance between completion and uh, distribution and really promoting it and talking about it. But then even when it comes to the game design itself, how much uh, lead time would you say on those there was? So when people ask me how long does it take to make a game, I will say two years, just design. Mm -hmm. um, when they say, how long should I expect before it would be published? I say four. And that has been close to the reality. There's always some kind of variance in that. And I talk to people who self-publish and I, I do not self-publish, even though some of my work has been on Kickstarter by, by other people and other companies. I committed a long time ago to focusing on the craft and the art and the science of design and leaving the business side of things to um, people who that's their passion. Yeah, just um, like you said, giving away the things that, that maybe aren't bringing value to you. Correct. Yeah, so I don't want to be... Um, managing all the shipments and dealing with, you know, orders and communicating back and forth with printers in other countries and so on. I love that other people are doing that. Now, the real money in board games tends to be on the, on the publisher side and the distribution side. Um, designers tend not to get um, that lion's share of the funds. Um, but on a big hit, a designer can do pretty well. Yeah. So you've had some 
just amazing games. I mean, Dwellings of Elderville right now, like I said, hugely popular. Like, it's an amazing game. Dwellings and Energy Empire are truly two of my favorite games just of all time. Like, Energy Empire was the first time I heard about you, and just it just blew my mind. I don't know what it is. There's something about how the mechanisms work together that's just, it's very satisfying mm-hmm. with dice rolling that doesn't take away from the game in any way. It, it adds to it and something, because arguably people will say like, oh, randomness from dice, randomness from this or whatever, and they aren't as keen on it. But when randomness is introduced correctly, which probably, this is a, a question, does there have, there probably has to be some sort of randomness into any game. Wouldn't that be, would that be correct? More or less, yes. Um, so r- randomness doesn't always necessarily come from random number generators or random draws. Sometimes the the randomness can come from the actions of people too. Mm-hmm. Um, even in a game where everyone has access to the same information, there can still be a degree of unpredictability about the path that the game will take. But um, there's, a, there's all kinds of different stuff I could talk about in terms of like design philosophy that's gone into these different games and seeking those fun moments, those exciting moments, those um, where you feel that sense of accomplishment or discovering um, a, a chain of events that will lead you to feel like you're smarter than everyone else in the world. Um, that feeling of escaping a devastating loss or averting disaster. Um, those, those kinds of things are the kind of things I seek out in games. And I know that uh, when games tend to, to move into more of the, the Euro side of games versus the American Ameritrash side of games, there's a tendency for some of the, what we might call the fun factor actually to be reduced, where people are looking at the fun as in kind of a methodical solving of a problem, uh, not the not necessarily the exciting moments side of thing. Um, so I try to include that, that seeking of the, the methodic, methodical problem solving strategic aspects along with those explosive moments, those moments of crisis and those moments of uh, victory um, exciting moments, uh, you know, where <laughs> you just pulled off something that no one thought was possible. Yeah. And, and you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, the art and science of board game design and being a science teacher, how do you see that overlap? Because I do feel like there's a lot of, like you mentioned in the morning, you're doing design, you're doing mathematical work. What, what's the balance between sort of the art and the science or math of a game? Mm-hmm. So um, when I started, and this this may interest you as uh, uh, you tend to be interested in things like entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first got started, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, I've always had all kinds of different mathematical science skills. I, you know, I knew the math, I knew the numbers, um, and I had some experience with games. When you actually go to start making games at first, you you kind of assume that certain things about building games will be easy and and that by doing things in ways that are different just being different you'll somehow stick out Uh, but the reality is is there's this there's this balance between creating mechanisms and themes that have this degree of familiarity 
where people sit down to a new game and they still feel they feel attached to it when they begin um and then in comes subtly those differences those innovations where people are like whoa oh hey this is a little different all right i got to do this little thing if it's so different from their experience, either through the theme or the mechanics, uh, they won't be able to attach themselves to it. It'll feel too foreign, too alien, and it won't have that pull. If it feels too similar, then they'll just compare it to other things. And they'll say to themselves, ah, I think I'll just go play Dominion. Um, mm -hmm. I'll just go play Waterdeep. This is just the same thing with different color cubes or something like that. But um, with regards to the like the science work, my my prior education and so forth. So a lot of my early work went into Energy Empire, which draws from like my understanding of the way we we create energy and its effect on the environment, the different kinds of um, pollution that we generate, um, and how all these these different factors fit together, and how almost everything that we do. Um, economically, industrially, and so on has trade-offs. And so the entire game, you're looking at how you work these various trade-offs. So that, that was drawn from my experience. And I do things like build spreadsheets of the numbers. Um, I do use some degree of calculation, but the reality is a lot of my game design is more about heuristics and looking at kind of big picture feel kinds of things in large part because most of my games feature some degree of engine building mm -hmm. and engine building very quickly becomes incalculable um, you have you only have a sense for how much kind of growth in in output and production that people are going to be able to pull off and so you're looking at you're looking at balancing things like the, the resource acquisition, the action efficiency, and you're looking at um, kind of how is this going to explode and what are the limits on that growth? When you focus on the limits, that's where you can kind of like tinker and find that balance where you say, well, as long as no one's able, able to do more than this on a turn, and as long as they can't ever get more than this kind of resource, that's going to keep the game in check. And if, as long as they stay within that, you know, that fence, we're, we're going to be okay. What was your question? <laughs> no, I mean, that's perfect. Just the art versus science of it. And then when it comes down to, say, your engine building, so that's for anyone listening who might not be into board games specifically, you may have like a deck of cards and you're acquiring different cards and building an engine in front of you where you're able to then achieve more like as the game progresses and just it ramps up with time when it comes to say individual cards or um classes of cards then are you is it still more of the big picture through play testing and through these heuristics that you figure it out or do you have sort of a a weight that you assign to different things in these spreadsheets where you're like okay i have 23 like weight one 17 weight six like whatever or something like that how do you how do you approach stuff like that yeah it's it's different with different games and um and you're right that there are some degree of uh weights that i assign to things so for example um energy empire commonly has uh, uh 
uh, there are cards that cost between one and two resources. Um, in money, it's a slightly different um, conversion. And then their average output is one resource, um, which you can actually get that output on the same turn that you acquire the card. And then the card may or may not come with a liability in the form of uh, pollution. So essentially the cards are built around kind of a factor that's it's like one. The one being um, one cost, it's about 1.5 cost because it depends on where it is and in the market and you have to decide if it's worth it for you. Um, so 1.5 cost, approximately one output, one resource getting converted to two or just one resource output. And then if it produces more resources, it's more likely to come with that liability that becomes something you have to deal with later, which can cost you actions or other resources. So by kind of building all the cards around that kind of balance, and then recognizing that it's actually okay for some cards to be better than others. Um, so uh, I learned that uh, several years ago, going to some workshops, um, where there's a discussion of balance when there's choice involved. Um, if everything looks and feels perfectly balanced, you've actually removed choice um, from the mm -hmm. game. So um, it's like uh, if you have, uh, you know, 10 flavors of ice cream that actually all taste the same. Yeah. And they're, they're in different packages. Your choice, your choice doesn't matter anymore. So there has to be some variance. There has to be some difference and not just in like um, different resource output, but some of that actually have to be better than other cards. And uh, it, what's funny is once in a while, people are like, why do they even put this one card in the game? This card <laughs> sucks. And I was like, that's so that other card looks better. Did you catch that? <laughs> nice. Yeah. If they all looked good, they're not, none of them are good. Yeah, seriously. And yeah, not to get in the weeds too much with all of the, the math, like math management behind it, but I find it super fascinating because I come from a systems place. Like I'm a developer, like entrepreneur, like I build businesses and figure out the systems to make them profitable. Mm -hmm. And that's really where I spend all my time. So I've always wondered because obviously every designer will have a different approach somewhat and um, whatnot, but I could imagine if I was designing a game, I'd very much have constant weights for things. I'm trying to balance a number of cards and yeah, just throwing that in there and saying like, yeah, you need to have that, um, keep the agency with the, the player. Right. Otherwise, yeah, it's not, you're right. It's not going to be fun. Otherwise, then it's just a math problem. Yeah. And some people love just a math problem. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> so that's where you get into like, um, you know, every single game is going to have its fans and its detractors. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, that's true of almost everything in life, right? Oh, yeah. But uh, when you when you find a game that it's clear enough in its marketing and its theme and its presentation that the right people are drawn to it, that's when it works. Because there's a market out there for all kinds of different games. And it's really important that when when you buy a game that you buy the game that's right for you and you avoid the ones that aren't right for you so that and in the long run your, your game is going to look better it's going to be um, more accepted in the market um, 
uh, there was something else I really wanted to add to that. But you go ahead. Give oh, me yeah. some more questions. <laughs> well, I was going to say, being a designer, do you find yourself, like I know you got your start sort of with D&D and doing campaigns and different things. And then mm -hmm. um, like you've been sort of around board games for a while. I like to dive into origin stories. I think we might get to that just in a minute. But do you find yourself currently playing a lot of games or does your game design, game development, and all the time within sort of your own ecosystem, is that the main focus? Absolutely, the main focus is on the, the design work. And so I've had some things I've really had to get done with a time frame. Um, for example, we recently finished um, the first round of uh, the draft for the solo rules for Whistle Mountain. Oh, nice. So Solo Whistle Mountain is coming out really soon. We're working on solo for Cryo. Um, and, um, I began working on a new project and, uh, I don't think I'm at liberty to speak about this one yet, but it might have a box about that size oh by, my. The time, by the time we're done. <laughs> Maybe we can get it smaller, but it's another, it's another monstrous game. Um, and this goes back to some things that I'd worked on several years ago also, but, uh, yeah, I don't get to play a lot of games. In fact, um, like I'll play little games on my phone, like between things and when I'm waiting for stuff. Um, board games in my household has dried up a little bit. Um, my son's busy with college. My daughter's always dancing and singing and doing her, um, her theater arts. And I've really, really kept pretty isolated during all of COVID. Um, I played one game of Dwellings of Eldervale with uh, developer Peter Vaughn uh, many months ago after after we first got the, the first copies. And I'm waiting because uh, very soon I'm going to have a whole bunch of uh, my my gaming friends are going to be fully vaccinated and I'm finally going to get back to playing games. Um, I've had a luxury that I have a whole bunch of friends who are really like solid gamers and great at learning games and they teach me games and then i don't have to nice. i don't have to put in that energy to be the teacher i can focus on learning the game and you know and then absorbing it all and then taking that back to my my design work but yeah i do not play many games yeah so. and do you arguably that could be like one of the big strengths too because you have the fundamentals there like you understand all these different mechanisms and whether it's deck building or dudes on a map or all these different things mostly that you built all of them into dwellings really i look at dwellings sort of as this ultimate game of covering all these different mechanisms in one which i think is it's beautiful like how it works together um like do you since you started designing have you found that you were playing games a little less or maybe that things would influence you or positively or negatively when you're trying to to create in in your space i'm certain that i'm influenced by everything that i play mm -hmm. um, that said sometimes i can be influenced by the idea of a game that i didn't even play um, so i have pulled from games where I was like, oh yeah, that concept. And I just observe the game and I see how the concept works and then I pull it back and then I, I you know, put that into my repertoire as things to draw from. I can't specifically think of an example right now, but I, I know there was something. Um, I know I have put in things into my games that 
I know exist out there. And people say like, Oh, that's like that one game. And I'm like, yeah, I, I haven't played that. Um, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. But, um, there's too many games mm -hmm. too. There's just playing too many games out there for us to play them all. Um, and that's, that's a glorious thing. And it's also, uh, it feels, uh, it's a little bit of a letdown that there's all this great stuff and I can't, uh, I don't have the time to, to dig into all of it. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it is, it's a crazy time for board games really in the last several years, just how it's blown up and how many just phenomenal designs there even are, let alone mm -hmm. just the number of games across the spectrum. It's, yeah, it's wild. Why do you think it, like, do you have any sort of insight into why it's blown up as it has? That's a good question. I, I know that Kickstarter is a factor. Um, and I know that uh, the ability of just about anyone to produce something, at least on some small scale, is a factor. Um, companies um, come and go too. So sometimes it will be the, the ambition and the effort of a designer. They put out their, their first game, they self-publish and they realize they didn't want to be self-publisher. Um, and so then that company will kind of fade away and then that designer might go and do other work. But, um, I don't know all of the motives other than that the market clearly can bear it. Mm -hmm. It isn't necessarily creating a thriving environment for everyone. Um, so do you mean for the you, designer publisher? I'm thinking, I'm thinking personally from a designer's perspective, it's very difficult because you really, really have to make your work stand out when there's so many products out there. Um, it's, I mean, it's something akin to arts. It's like music, um, dance, poetry, and so on. There's so many people that are engaged in all of those different arts that if your work doesn't truly stand out um, in a way where you manage to capture an audience, it won't be profitable. So there's a whole lot of stuff out there that, that isn't necessarily profitable, but it is, it is out there. It is on the market and it, and it can be consumed. Um, I've been lucky that I've worked with um, either people who are really established or people who are really passionate and managed to, to make that happen. So I like to think that my designs are so good that they would have stood on their own. But th the reality is that, that isn't true. I mean, um, Stones of Fate was a passion project uh, by my friend uh, Jeff Cornelius and his brother. And they, you know, they put their all into it. They wanted, to, they wanted to start their company, Cosmic Wombat Games. And their company managed to make another game, um, Campaign Trail, successfully. But they, they really struggled. And making it as a as a publisher is super challenging. Um, Energy Empire was published by Minion Games, um, and James Matthews has since passed away. Um, but this was, I think, his seventh, eighth, ninth Kickstarter, maybe more. He did some small Kickstarters, and in addition to his game Kickstarters, so he was pretty well known. And it was branded as a sequel to an existing franchise of a popular game. Um, which did inspire my work, and so that helped. Um, then uh, Whistle Mountain is uh, Bezier Games, and everybody knows Suburbia, and everybody knows the Werewolf Games. Um, and so also established, 
Dwellings of Eldervale is breaking games, which does a lot of lighter party games and so on. Um, they also did Rise of Tribes and Peter Vaughn was the developer on that project. Peter Vaughn is one of the most passionate developers out there, put his heart and soul into Dwellings of Eldervale and made it impossible for people to, to look away uh, <laughs> when, when they looked at that Kickstarter. And then uh, Cryo is a Z-Man game. And Z-Man is now a subsidiary of Asmodee, um, which includes, you know, like Fantasy Flight games and all that. So this is a, this is a huge company and they have, um, they have their, their marketing and their design teams and their production and so on. And so I've been lucky that my products, the, the, my designs have become products with people who knew how to make it impact the market. Oh yeah. Yeah. You're relinquishing control over the things that, that you're not an expert in. And that's really valuable for any sort of industry that people are in is sort of knowing, knowing where our uh, skill set and everything, the sort of the end of our abilities. But I've, I've seen you talk in the past how you're like, if there's something I want to do, I'm like, oh, of course I can do it, which I feel very similar in that regard. Um, but then knowing your limits is is so important yeah. at the same time. Now, maybe I would be a great publisher. Um, so I, so for example, I used to work on cars all the time. Uh -huh. I had a 69 Z28 Camaro. Oh, nice. I had a 73 Triumph Spitfire. I rebuilt Volkswagen engines. I painted cars. Now I take my car to the shop and somebody fixes it for me <laughs> and I have all that time. Yep. And so we make these different kinds of choices. Um, sometimes you're choosing not to do something that you totally could do. And instead, you know that it's, it's better worth your time to do that other thing that you're passionate about. I much prefer to do the creative design work that I know is going to like at least have the potential to make me money than um, than to try to save a buck by spending all weekend trying to you know fix something I could have paid somebody to fix. Yeah, and then speaking of money, so this is a side hustle for you. It's not your full time gig. You're you're the teacher, as we talked about. How do you look at the that this side of you? Do you still see it as a hobby? Do you see it as almost like a part time job or a a business endeavor? Like, how do you look at it? Mm. Oh, that's an interesting thing. Um, I look at it as a, as a craft, as a discipline, as a hobby, and as a pastime. I think to me, it is all of those things. Um, it is a side hustle, but side hustle always sounds like you're doing something dishonest. Right? <laughs> um, going back to something you said earlier about um, kind of like uh, patience and commitment, um, I always tell new designers because they always are like, how am I going to get my game to do this? Or how am I going to get my game to do this? And I'm like, you're probably not. You need to give up on the idea that this game that you are so passionate about is the thing. You will be a successful designer if your focus is on developing the talents, the skills, and the work habits that will help you know the craft mm -hmm. because uh, this is a very difficult discipline and it's a discipline where failure is the norm. Um, most of the work that we do doesn't work. It, 
it winds up on the cutting room floor. And um, yeah, I think you've said people. I think you've said only ten percent of what you've worked on actually moves into anything. Yeah, it's it's something like that. I, I forget the numbers at the moment, but um, I mean, you can look at the stack right here. These are my currently published games, and I think I did the count of eighty-eight games that I've designed. Wow. And that in that includes like different versions mm -hmm. uh, of games. And so um, going back, I think I started designing somewhere between 2011 and 2012 when I very first started designing. And it would be it'd be three or four years before my first published game. And then so, it wouldn't... real quick, yeah. 2011, 2012, it's 10 years for 88 games oh. that oh, you yeah, worked yeah, through. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The, that... That just really blows my mind. Yeah, that's that, right? that's a bit. I mean, it doesn't look like a lot when you look at this, right? But I would argue it shows. It shows in these games because they are so just they're refined. I I wish I could speak to more than just Energy Empire and Dwellings. I haven't played mm. Whistle Mountain, Cryo, or Stones of Fate. I actually only discovered when I was doing a little research for our conversation. So I definitely want to check all three of those out. But in in Dwellings and Energy Empire, it shows that you've you've put in the reps like this is i like to like tell people like the reason i called this show starting now was that it's important just to get started i've talked to like coaching people and friends and clients and all these things about ideas they've had for years and they never start because they want it to be perfect from day one and right. it's never going to be perfect we have to put in the reps like when i started developing i worked on a, a different team and we were doing we did over a hundred websites in one year, which like looking back, I'm like, I don't know how we did that. It's just crazy. But that was my trial by fire. That's how I figured out the systems and figured out what I needed to let go, what I needed to focus on and how I could make this happen as my full-time yeah. career. So it, I think it really shows shines through in your game design that you've, you've had that trial by fire just in things that haven't gone public. Yeah, and I'm my own worst critic. Oh, um, yeah. There are probably games sitting in my prototype box that somebody would have published. Mm -hmm. um, and they might have done okay. Um, but I really only want my best work going out there. Now, that's, that's a luxury for me because my whole, my whole pursuit here is built on a solid foundation of having a steady career that I maintain at the same time. So I think of that kind of as my, you know, like that's my launch pad and everything else is bonus. And so it's okay for me to take the years to do this. I don't have to rush. I don't have to hustle. I do work with people who are in a hurry. <laughs> and sometimes I'm like, I, I, you know, I can only do what I can do, but I, I try to meet their deadlines and try to help them, um, you know, uh, hit the marks so that the, you know, the product can be released on time and so on. But from my perspective, if, a, if the game isn't solid enough, if it isn't interesting enough, if it doesn't feel like it's fun to work on anymore, I just shelve it and walk away from it. And I can focus my attention on something else that really is going to draw my passion and keep me interested. Um, because I want to be, I want to be interested the whole time I'm working on it. And um, I know that that's not always the case. Oh, um, yeah. I've heard interviews with rock musicians where they're talking about by the time we got done recording, we hated that album. 
and it's like their best album. Yeah, and then they hit the tour and just play these songs in perpetuity forever. How much iteration it takes uh, to get there, uh, it can it can be soul crushing. Um, Mm -hmm. That said, that's that that then motivates you to create something that's really highly replayable. So uh, let me let me tell you a little about Whistle Mountain because Whistle Mountain is insane. Um, <laughs> this game is starting to get the attention it deserves. It got nominated by the Dice Tower for being the most innovative game of uh, 2020. We'll see if it wins that. But um, and, and this probably is something you you will want to talk about too, which is I, I almost always work with a partner. Mm-hmm. The partner either being the developer that I'm working with or a co-designer. And so Whistle Mountain is co-designed with Scott Caputo. And Scott Caputo has designed a whole bunch of games that are based around tile placement. Basically, you know, taking different shapes of objects and putting them out there to build things. A lot of my work is on different kinds of action selection, usually like worker placement, where you're taking your game piece, putting it out there to take an action, to do a thing. And depending on where you put your stuff, changes what you can do. Whistle Mountain builds a a grid of these differently shaped objects um they call them polyon polyonimos which is like uh you know they're they're rectangular shaped objects on a grid and these are this is like a scaffold and then machines are built on top of the scaffold and all the while you're flying differently shaped airships and putting them in these different positions around and depending on how you place your airship you get a whole bunch of resources this game explodes in how much you can do on your turns. And it also makes questionable sense about how it all works. <laughs> it's this wonderful experience where you're getting these workers, you get them into the tower, and you're, the whole time you're trying not to drown because the water's rising, because you're being reckless and destructive and you're building in this canyon and you're melting the ice of the Rocky Mountains. Interesting. In any case, um, we... We come up with these ideas and when they when they spark and we can bounce them off this this other person um that's one of the keys to kind of keeping some of these things alive so i think a lot of the ideas that i have sitting on my my cutting room floor my abandoned projects are ones where i really tried to go it alone and trying to be you know a rugged individualist um doesn't always pay off because sometimes it's the it's the interchange with that other person with those other ideas and other opinions is where the the true creativity thrives yeah it's but yeah between the lines i mean that's really our business works because it's me and my business partner we've been doing this for over a decade now we just we fit together because we both we have complementary skills we can do what the other one does but we're not the best at that. Like Dave is the designer of the duo. I'm the developer. But then business-wise too, I'm more strategy. He's more in the visual space of what we're doing, but we can both handle the other side. And that is a big part of why I think we've been able to to also like not just survive, but thrive for so long in a space that is pretty competitive. And it's something that I like to to sort of tell people because people would be like, oh, what what's maybe the biggest piece of advice that you have as an entrepreneur? And a lot of times it is finding the right partner also, like not just a partner necessarily, because you need to have the right connection, which is really, it's hard to find. It's not, it's not simple, but it's very valuable. And I know Tom Jolly was one of the early 
people that you partnered with for Energy Empire. Um, how did that how did that go? Because he is a pretty dev um, established designer at that point, right? Tom is a legend. Yeah. So uh, he designed Wiz War, Dracon Cave Trolls. So his design work goes back to the 80s. <laughs> like he was. Um, uh, let's see, I've even heard that Richard Garfield credited a Wiz War as part of his inspiration for developing Magic the Gathering. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so Tom has been designing for a long, long time. And uh, like me, he's kind of a jack of all trades. He's uh, he's an electrical engineer. He designs puzzles and rocket nozzles. And these days he spends a lot of his time as an author. And um, But Tom is also the co-designer for Cryo. Oh, okay. So Tom and I work together on Cryo. Tom and I work together on Energy Empire. And Tom and I are actually um, brainstorming some new ideas on possible new game. So, uh, Tom lives in my same town, and I happened to meet him at Polycon. And Polycon is Cal Poly San Luis Obispo's annual game convention. And it's one of the oldest conventions in the country. Nice. Um, I don't know. I think they're near 40 years at this point. Wow. It's, just, it's almost as old as Gen Con. Um, yeah, I, I'm totally blanking on how many years it is. It's, it's been around for a long, long time. So... Tom and I met there at Polycon, and um, pretty soon we were hitting it off, playtesting each other's games. And then uh, he just fell in love with my original rough work for Energy Empire. And I said, hey, want to help me get this? Want to help me finish this? And we did, and we took it to Gen Con, and the rest is history. Yeah, and that was Drill Baby Drill at that point, right? That's right. Drill Baby Drill. Yeah, I love the name. It's the original <laughs> name of that game. But Thank yeah, you, Sarah Palin. <laughs> and like you said then teaming up later with the publisher who put the ip for for uh, manhattan project on there and stuff that that means a lot that that really has an impact on that initial um recognition of of what the game could be and that lends itself to a key thing for entrepreneurial entrepreneurial minds which is to be in the right place at the right time mm -hmm. Um, we were playtesting that game at KublaCon in San Francisco in May of whatever year that was, 2015, 2016. I'm blanking right now. It was a long time ago already. And um, so we played that with Seth Jaffe of uh, Tasty Minstrel Games, who's a developer for Tasty Minstrel Games. He loved it. He was super interested in it. He's like, hmm. He's like thinking about the game all weekend. We were like, oh, I think we've got him. He's, <laughs> he's going to be interested. And then uh, we were playing with um, um, Aldo Gyozi, who uh, worked with a, um, it's like a fulfillment distributor type company. And uh, they've been subsumed into what's now Flat River. And he's like, this is good. And he's like, you should, we should make sure that. Uh, that uh, Minion Games sees this because it's kind of like it's kind of like a Manhattan Project, and I was like, yeah, well, I love the Manhattan Project, and I was inspired by this, inspired by that, but I was really trying to make my own game. And so a uh, couple months go by, and we did meet with Minion Games at Gen Con, and what was hilarious was we took the game to the publisher speed dating event. So publisher speed dating is an opportunity for you to take your game, put it on a table, and everybody around you has their games. And publishers, major publishers, minor publishers are rotating through 
and you're giving, I think it was at the time, 10 minute pitches, seven to 10 minute pitches. But when we walked into the room, we were some of the first ones into the room and James Matthew, the owner of Minion Games was running the speed dating. And he said, Luke, put that in my bag. <laughs> he didn't want any of the other publishers to see it. Had he played at that point? At that point, at that point, I don't think he had played it. Uh -huh. um, I could be wrong. We, we did play it with him that weekend mm -hmm. and we did show it to publishers. We wanted to make sure that, you know, we gave it a chance to let people see it. And sure enough, it went home with Minion Games. And a couple months later, uh, we got it signed. And we worked on some minor retheming, shifting a little away from oil, a little more towards nuclear. And uh, yeah. How did you build history. that rapport with him initially that he, he spotted you and said, oh, his game's here. I want that. Uh, so we'd been reaching out, communicating via email. Um, but also there was word of mouth already going on about this game. So um, because we'd been playing in public, because we'd maintained a public presence and an online presence, um, everybody knew what we were working on and everybody knew what we had. And what did and that so, public presence look like um, online or um, just in public? Yeah, by and large. So I do a lot of my designing in public. So um, I, I don't post tons on my Twitter, though I do have a lot of Twitter followers. Um, I'll throw out a few nuggets here and there. I, I put stuff up on Facebook. Um, I share things in some of the groups, some of the design groups on Facebook. And um, at that time also, it would, be, it would be running games at conventions. And so you're, you're getting your game into the convention book and um, getting people to see it and play it. And then they're going and talking about it and doing their social media. So um, the best way that people find out about it is through that kind of organic nature where if you've really made something that's going to make a mark and a lot, a lot of people see it, they're going to be spreading the word. And, and that was happening with that game. Yeah, and it's that action again. You've you were taking yeah. the action not only to develop the best game you possibly could, but also to get it out there and not just sit on it hoping that sort of right place, right time. You were putting yourself yeah. in a bunch of places so the right place was uh, more likely to present itself. And I left out a big key part because it's becoming almost antiquated um, approach, which is that. Um, myself and about uh, 10 to 12 other writers um, all put together the League of Game Makers blog. And we wrote about all matter of game design topics for years. Um, we were putting out three blogs a week, Monday, nice. Wednesday, Friday. We were chatting constantly on our private Facebook group and discussing our approaches and having great debates at the time. And we pumped out a whole bunch of blogs. And in there, I wrote a lot about my process. So that, that aspect of, of writing about my process and doing research about my process and presenting what I was learning as I was going along, I was essentially taking the audience of the League of Game Makers along for the ride as I was learning what I needed to to become the designer I was becoming. And so there was a there's a degree of acknowledgement that people knew I was that guy with the League of Game Makers. In fact, we would go to conventions 
and we'd wear yellow shirts with black logos that said League of Game Makers and yellow and black. Oh man. So this you is so funny because I, I feel like we're like kindred spirits with this because <laughs> when we were building our company, we did some similar things where our accent color is pink. We were wearing these bright pink shirts with our big logo on it, giving yeah. people like these little um, acrylic necklaces that we made with our logo. And yeah, but it's just getting out there and getting getting the word out any way you can. But I just want to touch on what you said about bringing people along for the ride that mm -hmm. is what works. I mean, we we want to step into someone else's shoes and experience what they're doing. Like, it's why YouTube is so successful. So many people on YouTube, you have people who are mm -hmm. going to Disneyland and Disney World who are, that's their business. That's that's their career because people are like, oh, I wish I could be there right now. Let me watch yeah. the latest video. They're there again. Or there's people going through self-development, personal development things, like designer, like whatever it is. And it's it's such a valuable approach to everyone involved like mm -hmm. to you because you're building your audience and you're bringing people into to the story of luke and your games and all these things but also you're educating people as you're learning yeah so um yeah related to that and and kickstarter does a lot of that too from more of a product end um but also going back to the league of game makers i i wrote a I think it was a four-part series, and the four-part series was called How to Design a Worker Placement Game. And I had not yet designed a worker placement game. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I mean, I was working on trying to, but I, there's a little bit of bravado in that I was putting out articles saying, here's how you design a worker placement game, because I was developing kind of a, a theory uh, for how this can work. And I was walking through the, essentially the process for building Energy Empire. The, the first article in there was about games that you should play to familiarize yourself and understand, to do the research and understand how they work prior to starting your own work. And um, I've seen a lot of folks try to build a worker placement game because they think it's easy. And it is, it is easy to build a worker placement game. I put a worker in space A and I get this. Um, the challenge is making anything that uses that so familiar mechanism that people are going to care about and, and it, for it to distinguish itself in some way. So through that series of articles, I walked through the work that I was doing building Energy Empire. And I did talk also going back to earlier that um, kind of that math approach to how do you balance actions mm -hmm. and so on. There's an article that I did where I discussed that um, kind of the the it's semi heuristic, semi mathematical approach to balancing actions out um, in, in the design. So yeah, uh, building up the League of Game Makers, going to events as the League of Game Makers um, helped establish myself and several other people. Uh, Peter Vaughn, who, Dwellings of Eldervale, Tom Jolly, Jeff Cornelius, uh, and uh, Scott Caputo. And oh, um, I'm sure I'm forgetting some other people, um, but uh, Christian Strain did a lot of the artwork on Dwellings of Eldervale. He was also in the League of Game Makers. Nice. So that that process of kind of publicly engaging in trying to understand game design, game development. And for others, they were trying to understand publishing. 
um, helped bring us into the industry. Yeah. I mean, I love that. Love that approach. And clearly it worked. I mean, that it's established you and you've refined your skills over the years as a result. So you've, you've mentioned money is more on the publisher side, like from a designer, what type of career can someone, I don't want to say expect, but can someone strive for generally that you think is sort of uh, feasible? Like, what are we, what are we looking at? Is it going to pretty typically be a part-time hobby or could someone take this full-time? Um, I think by and large, as a general rule, the people who can take it full-time are people who they, they hit an absolute home run with a single design or multiple designs, or they're the kind of designer who really knows how to grind it out and produce a massive amount of work and they're either freelancing with multiple companies or they actually go to work as a designer or developer for a specific company. So there tends not to be this idea that uh, you will become a rich and wealthy celebrity with this. I've heard Matt Leacock talk um, and say that, you know, his, his lifestyle is fairly modest, but he definitely can get by on his, his game design work. And, and he lives in the Bay Area, so <laughs> I mean, it's, it's got to be doing pretty well to, to survive anywhere, anywhere within the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I do know some folks who have gone all the way into the industry, and it tends to be some kind of combination of design and development or working with a publisher. You'll see these people, you know, working the booths and um, doing uh, community outreach or various other kinds of tasks in addition to the design work. I mean, work in the industry is very, it, it can be pretty broad in terms of the, the skill set, the kinds of things that would go with it. Um, for, for me personally, I have no intention of becoming a full-time designer, um, knowing that I'd probably have to go more into something like that, where I'd be developing, where I would, uh, you know, form a partnership with a publisher or something like that. And, um, I'm going to continue freelance design work. Probably, that'll probably be the end of my story. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. We'll see how it goes. But yeah, I like mean, you said, it's still a hobby. So you still you still have the passion for it. And you had, I want to jump back to one thing in a moment. But when it comes to a deal for a game, how is that almost like an upfront purchase? Like we have a documentary. It's called Minimalism. Mm. It was um, it's on like iTunes and all these places. No upfront I have purchase. seen minimalism. Oh, have you? Yeah. Oh, nice. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we have all these places, but then Netflix yeah. ended up buying the rights to it. So that's an upfront. They buy it mm -hmm. for an extended period of time. We don't get royalties over time. Then they can renew. When it comes to like the industry for board games, how does that look? Are you doing per sale yep. royalties as an upfront? Yeah, basically there's, as far as I know, no one does an upfront purchase um, of of a board game design license. Um, they are royalties based. The, the manner in which the royalties go are different. So um, frequently those royalties are based on percentages of wholesale. And um, sometimes there will be separate carvings out or different rates for direct sales by the publisher at conventions or from their website or from Kickstarter. 
So, uh, you know, a huge Kickstarter where the designer has a, um, a direct cut of the Kickstarter can be, can be a windfall for a designer. Um, with, with one of my projects, there was a, a, um, a license that was based on profit. And that was interesting because, so basically you, you would not get paid for a long time. And then oh, once the okay. game became profitable, then it really starts coming in. Mm -hmm. um, but then, then it's like, oh, we got to reprint. Goes back to zero again because that's a <laughs> that's an expense. And now we got to get back to profitability again. So that that one's a little weird. Um, but it's probably akin to like real estate, where it's going to be boom or bust. There's no way to like have a nice steady even income off of game design even if i pumped out a whole bunch of designs i'm sure some quarters would be just way higher than other quarters i mean some are going to be bone dry and then others you're going to be doing okay but yeah there tend to be royalties off of wholesale so the publisher and distributors can do all kinds of different things that are going to change how many how much of the product is going to move in a given time a lot of board games don't last. A lot of board games never get a second printing. So a first printing might be 3,000 copies. It might be 5,000 copies. And so I tell designers, you shouldn't expect more than a few thousand dollars off of your design. And I saw your eyes there. <laughs> oh, yeah. no, yeah. I mean, that's. I'm not surprised, <laughs> yeah. unfortunately, just knowing, I mean, because really these upfront costs to do the print runs. I mean, the publisher is spending... I mean, so just an unimaginable amount of money on a single print run of any yeah. size game and then seeing any profits from that is, yeah, it's difficult. But yeah, that is, it just shows that the passion has to be there because that, I mean, it's not a, it's not going to be a, a windfall of money or anything. I tell people that the investment that I risk is my time. Mm-hmm as a designer, I'm not really risking any money, even though, I mean, I do spend money going to conventions. I do spend money on, you know, random various things related to building my prototypes and printers and computers and whatnot. But really all that is pretty similar to what I might spend on my ordinary life. And when I think about how much I enjoy the actual design work, I'm not really risking much at all. Um, there does come some stress that comes from, you know, working with people. Um, you, you can, you could have disagreements or you can have issues that could arise over decisions about what's going to happen. Um, you can worry about your art becoming a product and, um, and what kinds of changes might occur. I think that, uh, by and large, I've been lucky in that really good developers have worked on my work or I've been intimately involved in the development. So it never felt like it really left my hands. And by and large, the games that changed the most from the time that I thought they were done are better. They, they really were improved through the, the process of other eyes looking at it. Um, and then the process of converting it and turning it into a product. Um, but that said, along the way, oh man, there's all kinds of things. I mean, there was a point where 
like Peter and I were up in the middle of the night because our cards, you just couldn't read them. And these <laughs> icons are no good. And this looks too similar. And this is too dark. And we're missing the art for this. And we're missing the art for that. And all kinds of that stuff. So I, I have gone along for the ride on a lot of the business stuff. And I don't mind participating and contributing, but it also further reinforces how much I don't want to be the person in charge of the business side of things. Yeah, it's important to recognize that. I mean, because you could be, you could just find yourself in a spot doing a lot of things that you do not want to be spending your time doing, especially yeah. when it is a hobby. And I, we sort of touched on it earlier when, when you mentioned like rock stars, but are you able to still play your games after so many play tests and so much time? Yeah, um, I really am. Absolutely. Um, I will sit down and I will play. I will play Dwellings of Eldervale anytime. <laughs> Cryo, I just got, and it's frustrating because this game is really best at about three players, four players. Mm -hmm. And so I haven't yeah, been able right to now. get together my group, but I've been working on solo with Cryo. Um, yeah, Whistle Mountain, I'll play anytime. Energy Empire, anytime. Stones of Fate is so, it's such a simple little game that I'm like, oh, I don't know. Like, if you really want to play, we'll play Stones of Fate. But um, yeah, that one's like, it's retired to a degree. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a part of my history. Well, yeah, and that's but, the first one too, the first yeah. published game. Um, in terms of letting them go when you're, and sorry, I realize this is, I can just, talk to you all day about all this stuff so we'll wrap up in a little bit go for it oh, okay. um, i still have i still have about a finger of scotch left oh nice <laughs> perfect um when it comes to say sunsetting or um deciding that it's time to move on from a game because like you've mentioned i mean <laughs> so many like 88 different revisions of different games you've done and only 10 percent right. see the light of day how do you know when it's time to to maybe take this new idea that you have, like, oh, I would love to do have the game do this. And when do you know that, okay, you know, it's not this game. It's a different one. I was listening to a conversation the other day, I think it was on Freakonomics, where um, they were talking to that researcher who talks about grit. And um, I'm totally blanking on her name at the moment. Um, but she was talking about marks of successful people and successful people engage in metacognition. Um, I have the ability to step back and catch myself of being caught in my own trap of my own thoughts. And I can recognize the sunken cost fallacy and when I've fallen into it. So, um, so you're familiar with the McNamara's fallacy or the sunken cost fallacy, like, um, yeah, if you we, can just, yeah, touch on it a little we, bit. You know, we stayed in the Vietnam War because the numbers showed we were winning. And the numbers showed we were winning because we were only counting the things we could count. And uh, when we absorb or um, when we get over-involved in what is innumerable or countable, we sometimes lose track of those things that are not. And... Um, I've, I've been stuck in a design that I couldn't abandon. And the sunken cost fallacy is the idea that I've, I've put so much into this. It's like the $1,000 car. It was <laughs> such a good deal. I couldn't pass it up. 
and then it needed an engine and a transmission and a windshield and those locks don't work and pretty soon that thousand dollar car cost you more than what you should have spent in the first place so the sunken cost fallacy can trap people and they can feel like they can feel like they're always this close to making their design work this close to making their project work or this close to getting that that game design to something that uh, no publisher would say no to. And uh, the reality is, is that we tend to see our work a little better than it really is. So we have to look at our work and say, you know, this work, this looks good, but if it only looks good to me, that's, that's my own pride here. Um, I need to look at this objectively and see, does this really shine? Is this going to shine to other people? Is this going to shine outside of my own little peer group who are all there to support me? Um, I'm fortunate that I have some friends who play test my games who don't care about my feelings. Yeah, that's really valuable. <laughs> and they will crush me uh, in playing my game and they'll tell me everything that's wrong with it. And... I've, I've grown out of being dis defensive over it. And I've also grown out of knowing when they're wrong. Um, but the reality is that we, we, we can get trapped in the dream and the vision of something and lose sight of what it really is. So I'm really, really good at abandoning designs. Um, I let them go. I might even let them go too quickly, but the reason why I'm not afraid to walk away from a design, I tend not to go back to them directly, but I tend to draw from them for future work. So sometimes I see this idea and this idea and this idea, they're all over here in this game, but it doesn't work. But I'm gonna go and do this work and I'm gonna pull this one over here and I'm gonna use that for this design. Um, almost all of these designs draw from something else. Uh, here's a great story. Stones of Fate is a super simple card game where you put a grid down of nine cards, or it's nine cards in a normal game or 12 cards, I think you can do. And you are basically kind of like moving stones around and flipping the cards. And it's a memory game. You're trying to remember what was on the card that you peeked at as you play. The entire mechanic for Stones of Fate came from a game that I was designing that was this giant sprawling monstrous mess called Age of Prophecy. And Age of Prophecy was this game that was going to have like Greek gods and monsters and it was going to take place in the Mediterranean in this kind of semi-mythological world and it was going to take place over like generations or eons or years or something like that. And you were going to predict the future and the entire mechanics for stones of fate was how you would do your prediction of the future. So I took that lonely mechanic and produced a game around it. I've heard that the story of dominion is similar, that the entire mechanic of dominion was to draft cards to do something else that the rest of it got dropped. Yeah, I mean, I think that's wonderful advice to to be able to know that something isn't, it's not a failure. Like, you don't have to stick it out. The, like you said, the, the sunken cost fallacy. Like, you don't have to hold on to that one because you learned a lot. Like, you've 
right. develop new systems. You've created new something new already that is going to influence your future. I think that applies, and that's wonderful advice for anyone, whether it's game design or just entrepreneurship mm-hmm. in general, because everything we do just molds who we are in the future and what we're able to create right. moving forward. And that's where it's the craft. It's it's the developing the skills. Um, let's see, it's Nick Offerman. He plays uh, Ron Swanson on uh, Parks and Rec. Uh-huh. So in real life, he really does woodwork. And uh, in his stand-up, at least in one of his stand-ups, he talks about the importance of having a discipline, having having a craft, having a discipline. I have a bunch. Uh, behind me, you can see like all this woodwork. I, I did all this woodwork nice. stuff that's everywhere. Um, I, I have all kinds of hobbies, like way too many hobbies. Um, so anytime I'm doing one hobby, I'm not doing another hobby and I'm potentially neglecting other things in my life. But um, so yeah, Nick Offerman said, it's really important to have a discipline. It's that thing you can always go back to and you can continue to develop it. It can potentially be a lifelong thing that, that you go with and um, it becomes something that can, that can center you and center your work. So you want a uh, nugget that no one else knows about? Oh, I'm all for that. <laughs> so do you remember I told you that sometimes like you build something, some idea, and then you, you, you tend to use that in something else? Mm-hmm. Well, Dwellings of Eldervale was a, was a design that Peter and I conceived of in a purely abstract sense and almost a non-mechanical sense long, long time ago. It's about eight years ago. And we tried various ways of mechanically creating something that would make it click. And we tried and that was nice, but didn't quite hit the mark. This was interesting, but it's too different. Not right. And eventually Peter and I got busy with other things, working on other projects, other games, and we abandoned Dwellings of Eldervale. And then I was working on a game and the game was a sci-fi game. And I was working on the sci-fi game with these hexes and the spaceships are going to be worker placement. And then I was like, these could be dragons. This could be a warrior. This could be dwellings of Eldervale. And then I took those ideas and I go back and I'm like, Peter, look. And then within a couple of months, we were well on our way to building dwellings of Eldervale. That's amazing. So I'm going back to the work that inspired dwellings of Eldervale. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that is a perfect representation of, I think all of this, like everything we've talked about and being able to, being able to like sunset an idea that maybe just isn't there and being able to take the things away out of your life that aren't adding value to you, letting other people handle things. Like, I think this is, this is an awesome conversation. Like we could keep going. I don't want to take too much of your time. We're already already well over an hour. I but I don't even know what time it is, so we're good. <laughs> yeah. But sun's still up. That's all it's nice out here. Yeah, that's nice. I'm in Chicago, so it is already nighttime and it was windy and chilly today. So <laughs> So I sometimes wonder if um if any of my projects will be the kind of thing that'll be on the shelves at Target or would be um you know have that impact like a ticket to ride or code names or Catan or pandemic and 
most of my designs tend to be a little bit heavier and more complex than would than would fit that. So we'll see in time if that occurs. Um, what's kind of fun is when I hear from really like esteemed designers that they like my work. Like that is like that. That's a feeling that's as good as as any kind of like financial success. I, I got to play um, uh, Energy Empire, uh, for example, with with various people who were big name designers. Um, I've gotten to sit down and play games with uh, people like uh, Matt Leacock and well, even the people who become co-designers like Scott Caputo. Like I'm a fan of his work and he's a fan of mine and become co-designers. Um, there are uh, there are people who work in various industries, um, people who work like for Lucasfilm or you know they've worked on Star Wars movies and they're like <laughs> super into my games and I always wonder which of these connections is going to turn into something. You you just you never know. Yeah, you truly don't. And also, I think why they do turn into things like for you and for people when they do, it's because you're not you're not asking anything of them. You're bringing this. You're like, oh, I'd love to share this experience with you, whether it's your game, someone else's game. And you're just connecting. Like that's a big reason why I started this podcast was I've wanted a podcast forever. And in 2020, I wanted to reconnect with people I hadn't talked to in years. So I started reaching out to some of my friends, then people who I respect, like yourself, they were doing great work. And I'm like, I'd love to just sort of dive into like into your approach and your outlook on things because there's so much that we can learn and we learn from each other. We learn mm -hmm. from the stories that people can tell from their experiences. And it's not going to be Luke did XYZ, you should do XYZ. It's this is what you did. Now what can we what can we pull from there for for my own story, for someone else's own story? And I think it's it's hugely valuable. That uh that reminds me that um, I didn't mention anything about protospiel events. Mm -hmm. And so are you familiar at all with uh, protospiel events? Um, a little bit because you, you've started one, haven't you? So I've run a few of them. So um, Celesticon, Pacificon, Kublacon, protospiels, all in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, I don't actually live in the San Francisco Bay Area. I just, uh, I'm like... I'm like a satellite Bay Area person. So I, <laughs> I drive the 200 miles up there to, to participate in these events. So essentially what it is, is um, you're bringing all these different designers, some of them like well-established, published, some of them um, just getting started. Some people brand new, they have no idea what to expect. And you bring them all together into one big room. COVID um, makes this difficult. Yeah. You bring everybody all into one big room and you all play each other's work. And throughout the weekend, people are combining, socializing, playing games, um, doing work, designing work, criticizing each other's work. Some people um, give up uh, that weekend. Some people make connections with other people and, um, you know, start that process of, of becoming a published designer and um, just creating that, that environment, which is a semi-social environment um, that fosters creativity. It helps make games better. 
and it helps make people who make games better because we are better when we are learning from each other. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's a perfect, a perfect scenario, a perfect thing to set up for people because really, yeah, like you said, a lot of the things that didn't succeed for you, you tried to go it alone and going it alone, just we're always better together. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. But what's something that you're excited for moving forward? I'm super excited to see Cryo get released really soon. Um, so Cryo is a little different from some of my other work in that it is, um, it's a tighter game. It's a game where um, you will make pains on your decisions. Uh -huh. um, everything has an opportunity cost. It doesn't explode the much as much as uh, like Whistle Mountain and Energy Empire where it's like, I'm doing that and that and that and that. It's like, no, you're doing this and you're doing this and you're regretting not doing that and you're regretting not doing that. So as a result, we'll see how the audience receives it, but it's actually, it's the most Euro game I've ever built. Um, and it is the tightest game I've ever built. That said, I think it's very balanced. It's very interesting. And it's absolutely gorgeous. It's a, they did a beautiful job. Oh, I can't reach it. <laughs> it's just a beautiful game. Nice. Um, so the, the artwork is like Mobius inspired artwork. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like, you know, some of those original drawings that inspired Star Wars and so on. I'm also super excited about this new big project I'm working on, which is a sci-fi game. It's sprawling um, and it is the game that inspired uh, Dwellings of Elderville. Nice. Yeah, so that's the one that the original design sort of, that's what moved over into Dwellings, huh? Yeah. Nice. So we'll see, we'll see how that goes. Um, I have the luxury that I don't really have to pitch games. Um, basically I can say like, Hey publisher, you want to work together on this? And they're like, yes, <laughs> let's do that. And, um, and, and I have publishers coming to me and saying, Hey, can we do something? And I'll say, I don't know. I don't have time. Yeah. Yeah. You bring Contact so much to the table. I mean, the <laughs> games are phenomenal. You're bringing the community, you're bringing so many different aspects. So where should we send people who are listening, who want to follow along with everything that you're up to? Um, so I'm pretty accessible. Um, people can, um, you know, tag me or, or look me up on Facebook. I'm, I participate in the, the dwellings of Eldervale groups. Um, probably the only place I'm not as good is I'm not on Reddit cause I got shadow banned and I'm, I'm, I am on Twitter. Um, and, uh, I'm easy to find on board game geek also. So I'm happy to talk game stuff and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Again, pretty, pretty accessible. Yeah. Thank you so much. Like this was awesome. Like just an absolute joy to talk to. So like, I really appreciate you taking the time and yeah. Hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Take care, and it's uh, great being on here. Appreciate it. I want to thank Luke for joining me on this episode. Be sure to check out his phenomenal board games, Manhattan Project, Energy Empire, Dwellings of Eldervale, Whistle Mountain, which I'm definitely going to be checking out very soon, and Cryo, which is his brand new, uh, certain to be hit, I'm sure. But you can also find Luke on all the socials. Again, that's Luke Laurie. As always, this episode of Starting Now is brought to you by Built. At Built, we help you get started online. Whether you want to start a blog or a business, head on over to built.co. That's B-Y-L-T dot C-O to get started. Built. Your website, built for you, simply. 
Finally, if you're enjoying this episode and enjoying the show just overall, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And also, if you're not already watching the YouTube version, head on over to youtube.com slash Jeff Saris. It is my favorite version of the show. I have a multi-camera setup I'm really proud of, so I'd love it if you checked it out and let me know what you think. And that'll do it again for this week. Again, I'm Jeff Saris. This has been Starting Now. And I just want you to get out there and get started. This We need to dream less, do more. See you next week.